Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. The brutal killing of Tyree Nichols by Memphis police officers reminds of the historically strained relationship between black Americans and the police. Today, we're going to delve into that history here in the city of Detroit with a historian who has been researching the subject for many years. We'll also hear from a former Detroit police chief and local police reporter, and from you, our listeners. That's next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Detroit Today is supported by the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History. Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and it's really great that you've decided to join us today. In the last few years, there are few topics that have come to the minds of Americans more than policing, and specifically the relationship between police officers and citizens, and even more specifically, the relationships between police officers and African Americans. Since the very public police murder of George Floyd in Minnesota almost three years ago, we have had a more earnest set of talks about what policing is and what it isn't, how and whether police departments can change, and what people need to reduce harm and be safe as they try to exist and thrive in their own communities. These conversations are not going away anytime soon, in part because we continue to see tragedies unfold, and police departments are often at the center of those tragedies. The most recent high-profile event, of course, is the police killing of Tyree Nichols, who was beaten by several police officers in Memphis, Tennessee, and later died in a hospital. Now, we talk about this subject a lot on this show. We talk about the incidents when they happen, and we talk about the context here, that relationship between police and African Americans, what's wrong with it, whether it can be reformed or changed, and what we need to do to get to a better space. But after the killing of Tyree Nichols, I couldn't help but think about history, and especially history here in the city of Detroit. When you think of violent police departments, I don't know how Detroit couldn't come to your mind, at least in a historical sense. This was the home of Stress, a police squad created to stop the robberies and enjoy straight safe streets, as it was so-called. The Big Four, the Gang Squad. These are names that are very familiar to people who've lived here in the past and to those of us who still live here today. Now, we are trying to reform policing in Detroit just as they are trying to reform policing in other cities. And I think it would be unfair not to give a lot of credit to the leadership of the Detroit Police Department for those efforts. But the history here looms large over all of that and hangs forever in the minds of those who are the victims of police violence who were the victims of police violence, and who remember a city where, if you were African-American, you had every reason to be terrified just by the sight of a police officer. So we want to spend some time today talking 
about that history, how we got to this place in Detroit today where we are actually talking about real reform, whether it can happen, and how it should happen. And I want to start that conversation with somebody I know who has been thinking and researching about this topic for a really long time. Danielle McGuire is an adjunct professor at the University of Utah. She's an author, and she's a former professor of history here at Wayne State, which is where I met her. She's been on the show several times in the past to talk about policing and violence, and she's also currently working on a book that focuses on the history of police violence here in the city of Detroit. A little later in the show, we're going to be joined by Ike McKinnon, a former police chief here in Detroit, who has a lot of experience with this issue, uh, both as uh, a kid growing up in Detroit, as well as uh, as an officer and then as a chief. We'll also be joined by Jack Kresnick, who's a former uh, law enforcement reporter with the Detroit Free Press, somebody who covered lots of the history of policing here in Detroit. But I'm really pleased to welcome Danielle back to Detroit today to kick off this conversation. Danielle, it's really great to have you here. Thanks for having me. It's wonderful to be back in Detroit. Yes, that's right. <laughs> so I, I, I want to start with this book that you're working on, which is uh, about murders that took place at the Algiers Motel on July 26th. 1967. Uh, that's a very important date and a, a very important period of time here in Detroit's history. But take us back to that point in time and talk about why you want to write about that moment in Detroit's history and how that relates to the things I was talking about in the open, this history of really outsized police violence against African Americans in Detroit. Yeah, I think that case in particular is probably one of the most um, brutal examples of police violence and obfuscation after the fact that we saw during a very short period of time, you know, just a few days in uh, one week, in one month, and one year. And if we zoom in on that particular case and the context surrounding it, I think we get a really horrific picture of um, police violence, of cover-up, of corruption, of collusion between um, the detectives, the medical examiners, the courts, the prosecutors. And part of the reason why I was really interested in this story is because I think it's one of the few cases where you start to see very clearly the infrastructure of injustice that is at work um, in a northern city, um, but particularly around issues of police violence. And, you know, part of the problem with even getting to the crux of a lot of these issues is that the archive is so silent. You know, we get a police report, people assume that's the truth, and everything goes from there. But what happens when the police report is a lie? What happens um, if there are multiple reports submitted, but you only see the final one, the one that is written to be most exculpatory towards the police? Um, in this, this, this one week and this one particular case provided an opportunity to see lots of layers of what happened because we had multiple investigations. And that kind of created a better archive than what we normally have, which... I think enables us to tell a more full story of what happened so that we can get to the point where we can start to think about a real reckoning with our history, um, a kind of reconciliation, and move towards some kind of justice, even if it's just restorative justice in the sense of telling the story the right way and giving credit due um, to the victims and the survivors and the family members who have suffered for decades uh, with 
um, the impunity of violence done to their families. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and and for those who may not know, we should be clear that what was happening on July 26th, 1967, was the uprising here in right. Detroit, uh, a pushback by the black community against years and years of uh, police police brutality and police violence. And I think right there, uh, we have an opportunity to, 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 to kind of um, uh, expose the tensions that exist around that narrative. Uh, those of us who call it an uprising are describing mm-hmm. the reaction of the black community to, to what had been happening uh, to us for a really long time in Detroit. Uh, people who call them riots, I think, uh, it's fair to say, are downplaying that dimension of it. Uh, uh, this idea that uh, that there was a systemic, as you point out, uh, effort to not only um, uh, brutalize uh, African Americans in in the city of Detroit, but to cover up the fact that it was happening, I think, uh, comes to a very sharp point. Uh, during those days in 1967, when essentially the city the city boils over with anger at what had been happening. Yeah, and I think what you also see very clearly, at least what I see in the in the research files and the police records and the FBI records, is the police boiling over during that week and really losing absolute control. Um, they terrorized the black community that week. And I know some people will get upset with me saying that, but those are the facts. And on the night that police murdered Aubrey Pollard, Carl Cooper, and Fred Temple at the Algiers Motel, which was really late Tuesday night, July you know, 25th, um, into the 26th, they also just uh, went wild on the near west side and killed a bunch of other people. A number of those people they didn't file reports about, Um, They only maybe mentioned it later after a newspaper started to do an investigation. I'm thinking in particular of the murder of William Dalton um, on Grand River, who was picked up by the police after he was walking home. They accused him of uh, being out past curfew, but also of starting a fire at a warehouse. He, of course, you know, wasn't near the fire, but they persisted. And they ended up cornering him. He was surrounded by a group of police officers and they goaded him to run. He was a teenager, probably scared to death and probably unsure of what to do, but knew at that moment, like so many black teenagers probably did at that time and still do today, felt that his life was probably threatened. And for whatever reason, he made the decision to run. And the minute he turned away from the police officers, a patrolman raised a shotgun and fired shot and, and killed him. And then that group of police officers left. They left the scene. They didn't file a report. They didn't say anything. They didn't report it. Um, and other officers driving past the area later uh, found the body mm-hmm. and reported it as a dead sniper. Okay, so the, the very first instance in the records is that he is a sniper. 30 witnesses saw exactly what happened. And they saw the police arrest him, curse him out, roughhouse him, threaten him. They heard police dare him to run. uh, And then they saw police shoot him. And, you know, weeks after the uprising, when, you know, there were no arrests made in his murder, um, family and friends called the Detroit News. And they told a different story than what the police had been telling. And, And this is similar in a lot of these cases of that week in particular, but even today. Um, And the Detroit News did a story which really forced the police department to open an investigation. They interviewed a lot of the same people that had called the news and they determined, this is the Detroit and the Homicide Bureau, they determined that uh, witness testimony was um, contradictory. It wasn't credible. And so they decided it was a justified homicide. Every single case, when you look back, with the exception of the few people who died of arson or who were electrocuted, um, the story is very similar. Mm-hmm. And there are very discernible patterns that you can't unsee once you 
start digging in. Yeah, yeah. And we should be clear that what you're describing um, is, a, you know, this this stretch of time during the uprising when all of these things, um, you know, hit, hit a particular apex in terms of, you know, how bad right. they are, but that this was a pattern that had been uh, present with African-Americans in our communities for many, many years. If you go back um, not too long, before 1967 to 1943, um, you know, we can talk about the the uprising and the riots then, uh, the police riot, essentially, uh, that, that's right. unleashed on African-Americans. This was the culture of policing in the city for such a long time. And I think um, it's hard sometimes to get people to, to quite understand the breadth and depth of, of that culture. I, I totally agree with what you're saying. And I think that's what makes this week so unique in terms of our ability to really study it is that it exposes that those practices and that, that systemic um, behavior that is, you know, the, the officers are used to doing this, right? They're, this is not unusual behavior for the week. Um, they may have felt a little less constrained because so much of what they did could be covered up um, by just saying, you know, this is a quote, riot related death, or they could blame it on these elusive snipers that, you know, no one ever really found. Um, but it exposes a practice and a culture and a system. And that practice, culture, and system is what I think we're still dealing with today because we didn't deal with it then, right? Um, the fact that in almost all of the cases where there were very clear discrepancies and outright lies in um, police killings just that week alone, um, you know, all of all of them were considered justifiable homicide in a very perfunctory examination by the Wayne County prosecutor. And it was like, you know, that he looked at some paperwork and decided that was it. It was done. No one had their day in court. Um, there was no compensation. There's no discussion. And then right after the uprising ends, um, the police in many ways are rewarded. They're rewarded. Um, because they're given more leeway in the rules that allow use of force. Um, they're given more militaristic equipment and more funding. And they're given the benefit of the doubt over and over and over again. You know, they're acquitted in cases where they are brought to trial, as in the Algiers case. Um, and so, you you just this is why I think people today call this state sanctioned violence, right? right? State sanctioned terror, because you see so many layers of the state supporting and approving and enabling um, police violence and the cover up of that violence. Mm -hmm. So if we can zoom in and see it so clearly this week, I think it's really important that we zoom out and look at it more holistically, like. How has how 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 was that behavior set up in the past that led to police killings in 1967? How did impunity for officers who um, murdered citizens during the uprising affect the creation of stress mm -hmm. and the 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 kind of wild behavior of officers in that unit? in the 1970s and 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 how does their impunity right and our sort of brushing away that part of the past you know forgetting about it ignoring it set up a system where we're still dealing with the exact same problem today yes yes okay we're going to take a quick break and when we come back we're going to continue this conversation with danielle mcguire about policing in detroit the violent 
history of policing in Detroit. We're going to add some other voices to the conversation as well. Ike McKinnon, retired deputy mayor and former Detroit police chief, will join us to talk about his understanding and his knowledge of the history of policing in Detroit. Also, Jack Kresnick, a retired journalist who worked for the Detroit Free Press for 38 years, uh, covered a lot of different police issues while he was there. He will call in and uh, join the conversation as well. We also want to get going with you, our listeners, on the phones. 313-577-1019 is the number. Tell us what you make of the efforts to reform police, but also the history of policing here in Detroit. Have you seen it change over the year? Do you think it's changing for the better? Give us some examples. Give us some sense of the things that you've experienced as a Detroiter. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and it's really great that you're with us today. My guest right now is Danielle McGuire. She's an adjunct professor at the University of Utah, an author and former professor of history at Wayne State University. She's working on a book about the murders uh, of uh, several black men at the Algiers Motel during the 1967 uprising by Detroit police officers. Uh, We're talking about the history of violent policing in Detroit and what it tells us about the things that we see today, the things that we react to when they happen in other communities, the killing of George Floyd, the beating death of Tyree Nichols. Uh, All of these things uh, are connected in a really important way in our country and in our history. Uh, I want to add another voice to the conversation right now. Ike McKinnon uh, is a retired deputy mayor of our city and also a former Detroit police chief. Uh, He's also somebody who's had experience Uh, on both sides of this equation, uh, having been in charge of the police, of course, but also uh, having been someone who had to fear and run from the police um, before he was part of uh, the department. Ike, it's really great to have you back here on Detroit Today. Stephen, thank you so much. Uh, As as I was listening to Dr. McGuire uh, uh, recall the things that were happening in 1967, I, I, honestly, I flashed back to, uh, as you know, Stephen, my incident uh, being mm-hmm. shot at by fellow officers mm-hmm. and, num- and number two, being beaten up uh, when I was 14 years old. And those are things uh, that you just never, ever forget. And I, I listened to uh, Danielle, and I, honestly, I started to get chills as she was talking about the, uh, the, the things that occurred. It is not uh, a uh, happy moment to, for anyone to, to go through those kinds of, uh, of incidents. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, w- one of the things that I think you can help us do is uh, put all this history in uh, in context, but also uh, cast it forward to the time when you were police chief and the time since then. Uh, of course, uh, things look somewhat different, of course, now than they did then. But I think that history still really informs a lot of the conversations that we're having and a lot of the things uh, that we're seeing. But but let's start with you talking about um, how you grew up, um, you know, in, in Detroit and the fear that you had of police uh, in the city and why. Sure. I certainly grew up in Detroit, raised partially in the Brewster Projects, and uh, just north of there, the medical center area. And, Stephen, um, I saw, in my time, I only saw two African-American police officers. I also saw, on a regular basis, uh, uh, white uh, white, uh, police officers, in particular, the big four, 
who would grab young black men and throw them up against the, the walls, beat them up, and just take off. Uh, they would pull off, um, pull out their shotguns and their their weapons, uh, and just they would hold other people or other black people uh, against the wall and, and just take off. And of course, everybody in my neighborhood, we saw this, and it became a regular thing. And uh, it was one of those situations where you said, when is this going to stop, or how can we make a difference with these kinds of things occurring? And so uh, at, when I was 14, I was severely beaten up by the big four as I was uh, leaving my first day of school at Cass Tech. My first day, I was stopped and beaten by these guys, and they were, they were laughing so brutal. And other black people were trying to stop them. And of course, they took off on them also. So the, that, that incident set the tone for my life in terms of wanting to be, become a Detroit police officer and make a difference to change that kind of those kinds of actions against uh, anyone. Uh, and ironically, uh, Stephen, as I grew up and became a Detroit police officer in 1965, um, some of the white officers would say to me, you know, I don't know how you guys, meaning us black officers, can put up with this stuff. And they would, in, in particular, the, 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 the white officers who kind of grew up the same as I did, poor, uh, they said, you know, this happened to them too. So it was not just black people, mm. it was poor white people that these officers would be would beat up. Mm. And, and when you grow up to become a police officer, um, you've talked before on the show about the experience you had during the uprising. Uh, you were an officer at that at that point, but uh, some fellow officers uh, didn't know that you, that that you were and and uh, and and tried to tried to kill you. Uh, oh, uh, but I was in uniform. I was in uniform, and I was. So they uh, did know. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I was uh, uh, going to my apartment on the west side of Detroit on. Uh, Boston Avenue, and I had just left uh, the second precinct where I was working. I had my uniform on, my badge, and a chew on my lapel, which said the second precinct. And these two officers pulled me over, and uh, I stepped out of the car, and I uh, had my uniform on. I, I raised my hand because my assumption was that uh, everything was going to be okay. And as I've said before, uh, they said tonight and they use the racial and derogatory term, you're going to die. Mm -hmm. And obviously I didn't believe this was going to happen, but I I could see this one officer, that officer with the brush cut and gray hair, as he started to pull the trigger. And uh, either he or both of them shot at me as I dove back into my car. And uh, I remember driving, grabbing the steering wheel with my right hand, pushing the uh, accelerator with my left hand, and sped off. They continued to shoot. Thank God they missed me. Uh, but that, that to me, it always stands out that, you know, why in the heck is this happening? Mm. But the reality is that uh, we, ha- we know there's some very serious racial problems mm-hmm. that existed then and still exist now. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to add another voice to the conversation as well. Uh, Jack Kresnak is a former Detroit Free Press reporter. Uh, he was there for 38 years. Uh, he covered a number uh, of different things, but but also covered the Detroit police uh, for a long time there. Jack, uh, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So uh, the reason I wanted you to be here in particular, Jack, was uh, some of the things that, that you saw and wrote about uh, while you were uh, a reporter at the Detroit Free Press. Uh, the, the, the time that you were there marks sort of uh, the evolution of, of the Detroit police in some ways, but also uh, there, are, there are many of these, uh, these incidents where police brutalize uh, black people in particular uh, that, that, that you witnessed from, from that seat as a, as a journalist. Uh, talk about uh, the things that you saw over time uh, covering, covering policing in the city of Detroit. Well, uh, I was there from at Detroit Police Headquarters from about 1973 until about 1980, and uh, it was a pretty horrific time in Detroit with uh, a serious, serious crime problem. I think in 74 there were 800 homicides, 
Um, and I, I believe that after the civil disturbance of 1967, that Detroit police took some, uh, you know, real serious and true criticism that they kind of backed off and let that disturbance grow into a five-day conflagration. Um, and I think after that, there was a call in the department to more strongly enforce criminal laws. And one of those uh, tactics that they used was, was develop stress, which was, uh, as you pointed out, um, uh, an acronym for something I can't recall right now. But, um, and it, almost immediately, it resulted in the deaths of several black men by uh, usually white officers. Mm -hmm. Um, 71, 72 is particularly bloody there. And, uh, it kind of came to a head in March of 72 when, uh, officers from a stress unit followed a man they thought was armed with a weapon into an apartment building on Rochester street. And it ensued in a gunfight between the, uh, the, uh, on duty stress officers and several off-duty Wayne County Sheriff's Department deputies who were just playing cards in that apartment. Uh, one uh, sheriff's deputy was killed. A couple of others were injured. Uh, it, was, it was a complete uh, screw-up. Um, and the, there were three stress officers, all black, who were charged uh, with that crime of shooting, but all three were acquitted, uh, which is what happened in a lot of cases. There was a, uh, a stress officer named Raymond Peterson mm -hmm. involved in the killings of nine black men, five of whom died with, with bullets fired from his gun. And he was um, charged with second-degree uh, manslaughter or murder, and uh, ultimately acquitted. Uh, very few convictions in criminal court resulted uh, from the investigations of stress at the time. Um, but I do think that when Mayor Young took office in 1974, that there, was a, there began to be a period of a lot more accountability and um, transparency about what was going on. And there was no hesitation to firing officers. And Peterson was fired, even though he was uh, acquitted in that in that killing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so, Jack, I also would love for you to talk about um, the killing of Malice Green uh, by two uh, police officers, two white police officers uh, in the early 1990s. And yeah. I guess how that demonstrated that despite all the efforts that Mayor Young and even Mayor Archer were making to reform the police department, there was still a culture uh, that had hold of the department that harkened back to uh, the time uh, of, of 1967 and before. Oh, yeah. There, it was a, a horrific beating of a, of a black man named Malice Green, as you pointed out. Um, and the officers uh, seemed to be well, it, it's hard to describe, but they um, they were bent uh, bent on vengeance or something. They just kind of went out of control, uh, and uh, there was a, a, a burgeoning civil disturbance happening outside of the location where that uh, occurred. Um, I was out there for that, and uh, a very uh, nice black man came up to me and said, you know, you better get out of here because they're getting a little crazy. Um, other reporters came to take my place, but it was the only time I really felt like maybe I shouldn't be in a situation like I was as a reporter. Um, but I, you know, the attempts to, to hold the officers accountable went forward. Uh, there was a trial, um, as I recall, mm -hmm. um, I 
but I, I can't remember. I think there was a conviction, but it peeled. Uh, but I don't remember for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, Ike McKinnon, I want to bring you back into the conversation sure. as well. Uh, this is the time when you're in the leadership at uh, at the Detroit Police Department, um, and and somebody who's trying to reform the department. Uh, talk about where we were in the 1990s with this history of, of police violence. Yes, uh, you know, Stephen, uh, I, I became chief after uh, this uh, malfeasance. After that happened, I think, right. Yeah, I think uh, Stan Knox was chief during that time. But the thoughts and the ideas were there. For instance, um, I remember I was uh, in Washington with all the major chiefs of, in the United States and deputy mayors, too, and I told them of the incident that occurred with me. I told them of things that I had seen in police departments and what we all had to do to change or try and make a difference in our respective departments. And uh, it was just interesting for me that no one said anything in terms of what they were going to do. This was certainly right after Rodney King, too. So we, we saw all these things occurring. My my thoughts with Detroit was I, I had seen a great number of incidents that had occurred uh, to me that I had stopped uh, things occurring to other people. It was important for me to get a team of people to work the same way that I wanted to do to make a difference within our uh, city and within the police department. However, the the culture, and I, I, I'm going to use this term probably a lot, the culture in a lot of law enforcement departments is that things are, you know, these people deserve that, and they will do whatever they have to do uh, to stop them from doing that. And it was always them versus us was the term that was used so often. And it, it, was, it was very difficult, even though you're in a leadership position. Certainly you couldn't fire everyone, and, of course, they, they had unions and so forth. But it was, it was very difficult, Stephen, as whether the chief or as a city leader, to, to change everything and to stop all these violent acts that were occurring, and it continued to do so. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, we're going to take another quick break. Uh, I want to thank Jack Kresnick, a Detroit Free Press reporter for 38 years, for for being with us uh, to talk about his experiences. Uh, we're going to keep Ike McKinnon and Danielle McGuire when we come back. And we're going to get to your calls and your social media comments. Uh, if you want to join us here, 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. I'm Stephen Henderson, and I'm glad you've joined us. My guests are Ike McKinnon. He's a retired, uh, retired deputy mayor of Detroit and former Detroit police chief, also a former Minneapolis Police Department consultant and a former professor at U of D Mercy. Also with us is Danielle McGuire. Uh, she's an adjunct professor at the University of Utah, an author and former professor here at Wayne State University. Uh, she's working on a book about the murders during the 1967 uprising of several black men at the Algiers Motel. We're talking about the history of police violence against citizens, against black citizens in particular here in the city of Detroit. Uh, we want to hear from you as well during the conversation. Give us a sense of how you uh, interpret some of the things that we see now in other cities, Tyree Nichols being beaten to death by police officers, George Floyd uh, being murdered in Minneapolis three years ago. Uh, do they remind you of things that happened here in the city of Detroit, the struggles we've had trying to keep people safe from the police uh, in, in our communities? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we can work you into the conversation. Let's start today with Gene in Detroit. Gene, welcome to the show. Oh, good morning, Stephen. I'd like your guest to comment on uh, the 
similarities between the stress program here and the sting program in uh, Tennessee known as Scorpion, uh, where uh, Tyree uh, Nichols was uh, killed. Mm-hmm. And uh, if they can, estimate how many other sting-type programs are in existence uh, in the rest of the country mm-hmm. uh, that target uh, uh, young, low-income people. Yeah. Uh, Gene, great question, and I'm, I'm glad you called to inject that. Uh, Danielle, uh, stress is something uh, that that fewer and fewer people are old enough now, I think, to actually remember here in the city of Detroit, but it is an important part of our history. When I heard about this Scorpion unit in Memphis, it was one of the first things that jumped to mind was was stress. So, so talk about the connection between these types of units and, as Gene asks, whether there are lots more like them in departments around the country. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm like you, Stephen. I, when I first heard about the Scorpion unit, I said, gosh, that sounds so familiar. And I didn't even go to some of the units that have been created more recently in places like Atlanta and New York and Los Angeles. Um, I went to Detroit because it sounded exactly like what that was. And I think, you know, so many people, you know, either don't know the history or they have forgotten, except those, of course, who've lived it. Um, But the stress unit, you know, was in the end a kind of terror squad. It was like the Vice Squad, the TMU, the Big Four on steroids. And um, these are supposed to be elite strike units that are sent to, you know, hot spots in cities. Um, But so often they operate with uh, almost complete impunity and uh, outside the norms and rules of, you know, any kind of... um, proper training or behavior Hmm. and and they they do it until something really horrific happens that becomes public you know you think about the brianna taylor case right um that was part of a a hot spot strike squad um the raid on her apartment the wrongful raid on her apartment and i think that's what happens in so many of these cases and so um you know that scorpion squad has been around uh, for a few years prior to this horrific beating and death and what they were doing to Tyree Nichols, they were doing to people all around the community. And those people were complaining. There were protests. They were, you know, they filed reports and, you know, in lots of ways, the city and the department, the chief ignored those reports until they couldn't ignore them anymore. And I think that's what gets me so upset. Um, I mean, among other things Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, about this case in particular is, you know, when you look at the very first report the officers um, submitted for in, in their encounter with Tyree Nichols, they lied, right? And the story that they told is exactly the same as the story that David Senek, uh, Ronald August, and um, Robert Paley told uh, the night that they um, murdered the three teenagers at the Algiers Motel. And it's the same story that officers told the whole week during the rebellion of people that they shot and killed. And it's the same story, I believe, that you see in almost every case of, um, you know, uh, police killings, is that is that uh, the suspect basically got himself killed <laughs> because they fought back, they resisted arrest, they reached for the gun, they lunged, they did something that allegedly threatened the officer's life. Um, and they count on those stories, often written by union lawyers uh, with legal language that is exculpatory um, in order to justify, you know, behavior that is not justifiable at all for for a department that is charged with public safety. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so so the caller makes a really good point. And and I think, you know, all of these units, they, they've come and gone. Right. They, they were um, they started popping up. Uh, in the in the late 60s and early 70s, then after civil rights and black power protests, they kind of disappeared. Uh, then they popped up again in different forms, but they're all doing kind of the same thing. And they almost all result in the same uh, tragedies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Ike, when you were managing the, the, the police department, uh, talk about the role of these kind of special squads. I can remember as a teenager growing up, 
in the 1980s, uh, the fear that we had, me and my friends, of the big four uh, yeah. who, who were still kind of roaming the streets and, and we, we knew we just didn't want to we didn't want to come across them. Uh, but 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 what role did you see for those kinds of units when uh, when you were in charge? Well, we didn't have the big four. And the reason being, as I mentioned before, these are the kinds of things that I had witnessed. And so many people had uh, complained to me and to other supervisors about these kinds of incidents occurring with them and to their friends. Now, one of the most important things here, number one, is the people that you recruit to become a law enforcement officer. That's, that's number one. Number two is uh, the um, other part of that would be the um, uh, supervisors. But unfortunately, the supervisors are former police officers, and they maintain or manifest the same kinds of feelings and ideas as the officers. And so with those things working against you, you had to work so diligently to make sure that you had the right people, number one, as supervisors, and number two, as police officers. You know, I've watched this throughout the years and tried to rid our department, Detroit, of officers who had the propensity for committing these kinds of acts. But if you don't have supervisors, number one, uh, and officers who will stop them. For instance, uh, I told the story of a, um, as a sergeant at the 10th Precinct, I came across a number of officers severely beating some young kids, they're 14 and 15 years of age, and I grabbed these officers. I, in fact, I, I locked up one of the officers at the time. But there was no one uh, to back me up. My, my uh, inspector at the time cussed at me because I stopped these officers from doing what they were doing. And his words to me was, these officers are just doing their job. And I said, but that's not their job, no. uh, inspector. Their job is to serve and protect the people of the city of Detroit, not beat them down to the ground as they were doing. So there was no backup for a sergeant. Uh, or a supervisor who's trying to do his or her duty to stop these kinds of actions. Yes, yes. Uh, you know, just go ahead. Can I add yeah. to that? Yeah. Is that okay? There's no backup, and now there's there's um, there's court support for um, you know excessive use of force through qualified immunity. Mm -hmm. You know that that's it's crazy how you know it, it, in 1871. Uh, we passed, Congress passed a, an act called the Civil Rights Act of 1871. It became known as the Ku Klux Klan Act. And it was designed to protect black people from racial violence, mostly committed by the Ku Klux Klan, but sanctioned by state and city officials and who often participated in that violence. And that act has been so twisted mm. by the courts uh, to create this, this ridiculous concept of qualified immunity where basically police are totally immune from liability in in uh, in cases where they murder um, people who come into their custody or use such excessive force that they suffer for the rest of their lives and and that's something that we need to change and I know Congress can do that and um, the court can do that so you know when we talk about um, how we move forward we have to reconcile with the past but we also have to realize that, you know, as much as individuals have tried to make progress in some districts and police units and um, departments, we have an overarching legal system that supports excessive force um, and that protects police who use it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if I could say that, I know you don't have that much time, but there has to be an establishment of trust between the community and the police. And that, that is not the case. And we continue to see these kinds of things occurring. And and if it continues, it's going to get worse and worse and worse. And, I, I mean, Stephen, you said you had a distrust of the Big Four and mm -hmm. others. Every black police officer that I've spoken to in this country has had similar incidents that we just talked about. Every black man in Detroit that, that I grew up with has had incidents that occurred similar to mine with the police. Those are the kinds of things that create a systemic uh, lack of trust within a community. And that has to, the police have to make the difference there. We have 860,000 police officers in this country, but we have 330 million people. Mm -hmm. Who should make the change? Yeah, yeah.
Okay. Uh, I would love to get to more of our callers and to social media, but uh, we have run out of time. But I'm really grateful uh, to you, Danielle McGuire and uh, Ike McKinnon, for all of the the knowledge and understanding that you've lent to this conversation. Uh, it was really great to have both of you here. Thanks so much for joining. Thank you. Today. Thank you. Yeah. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. And a note to our callers, of course, this is not going to be the last time that we discuss policing or the relationship between police and citizens or black citizens in particular. Uh, Obviously, we will always try to make sure that uh, you're an important part of the conversation here. Uh, Keep calling and uh, eventually we will, of course, get to you. That's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to be talking with a philosopher about why she thinks animals deserve more justice in our society. Also, if you like this show and enjoy listening to this program, if you get real value from the hour we spend every day together talking about these really important things, you ought to share that idea with your friends and your relatives and other people in your life. Uh, You can find us at WDET.org. You can find us uh, wherever you download podcasts. We publish this as a podcast every day. Uh, We always want to grow the community that we have here at WDET and Detroit Today, and you're an important part of that growth. This is 1019 WDET-FM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.